This episode was recorded on the stolen lands of the Wondry people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to pay respect to First Nation peoples listening in today. We recognise First Nation peoples' deep connection to country, water, culture and language and the ongoing intergenerational trauma caused by colonisation. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome everyone to the first episode of Loud Angry Not Sorry for 2023. I am joined today by Madison Griffiths. We're going to be talking today about abortion, but before we get into that, Madison, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, my name is Madison Griffiths, as you already know. I am a writer, artist and producer based in Nam, Melbourne, and I have a book all about abortion coming out um, in July with Ultimo Press and it's titled Tissue, which has already, uh, already stirred up a few feathers. And uh, when I'm not writing about abortion, I, I tend to be uh, working in the space of domestic abuse. So I have a podcast called Tender, which is a podcast that interrogates what happens once people leave abusive relationships. So it sort of starts from the departure date. So yeah, I'm really passionate about all things feminism, which uh, we we share in common. <laughs> we certainly do. We certainly do. <laughs> Very cool. All right, well, let's just jump in. So we're talking about abortion and particularly abortion access today, mm-hmm. historically speaking. There's a long history in regards to policing women's bodies. And I'll, I'll like initially I'll talk in the binary because... Yes, I'm going to do the same. And I wanted to just as a little preface for all listeners and perhaps even for us to, to just to um, make sense of. Sometimes when I use the word women, I'm talking about forced womanhood or prescriptive views of womanhood yeah. as opposed to women more broadly like obviously the acknowledgement is that people of all genders can and do fall pregnant but yeah sometimes when I'm speaking of womanhood per se the pressures of womanhood it's it's much more it's air quotes it's it's very prescriptive in that sense yeah not not all women have penises and that's okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) so in regards to our reproductive history um it goes back as far as like Mesopotamia which is essentially where the first written word was and the first laws that were written down that we have found thus far all of the laws from Mesopotamia I mean and I use the word laws lightly because they didn't have police forces and there was no general way to enforce it but in Mesopotamia the majority of the laws that they had written down were so if a man injured a woman and caused an abortion there would be a punishment that would be sort of equal to that okay and if but it was very much about a punishment to the husband because the woman was obviously the man's property yes I see Yeah, but if a woman was to induce her own abortion, the penalty was astronomical. They weren't allowed to be buried or have a funeral or anything like that. Like it was just the significance. Yeah, Yeah. we've got a long history of (laughs) women not being allowed to control their own bodies. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it goes back to like low-key the the start of time. Yeah, wow. Okay. Huge. It's a lot to, uh, to unlearn. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, well, when we talk about how, how deeply ingrained in culture this viewpoint is, it thousands, thousands, thousands. And, like, I mean, it was written down, so obviously even before then. Yeah, yeah, written in stone. That Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this leads into the Madonna and the whore and the girl boss complex. And these complexes centre around male arousal and male ownership of our bodies over our own independent rights. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. In one of my essays, I researched the concept of guilt and what Mm -hmm. it is to experience guilt versus shame, especially in this gendered world that we live in. And there was a demon, there was this incredible demon from a bygone era, probably from just around that early biblical time. Her name was Abazu. And she was, from memory, she wasn't able to have children herself. She was infertile. She would cause infertility amongst women. That was her punishment. And I found this hilarious uh, biblical reading on a on a pro life website about how a woman was uh, who a woman who pursued an abortion was possessed by Abazu and had to be exercised. And I just thought, wow, that is some interesting stuff because Abazu sounds like a legend. Um, yeah, I and it really feeds into that fear of the woman that being her only purpose. And if she does not have that purpose, she then wants to destroy women who do. When really the people doing the destruction is the other other men in these instances the oppressors yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely i also want to briefly touch on uh forced sterilization and forced adoption and even though they don't seem to be related they absolutely are forced birth and sterilization and forced adoption are all about bodily autonomy and self-determination mm-hmm. the state should have no say in this how we choose to reproduce this absolutely. should be between us and our families and our communities. and Absolutely. And I th- I'm really glad that you mentioned how aligned forced birth and forced sterilisation is in this context because it really opens up the, the racial analysis and the class mm. analysis of reproductive access. I think a lot of people forget when, we're, when we talk about pro-choice and pro-life, which are very clean-cut binaries, they forget or they attribute pro-choice to pro-abortion. Obviously, I'm pro-abortion, but I think at the heart of pro-choice is the choice to determine how your body functions and who and, and when and how you decide to, um, to create or not create life. Yeah. So it's interesting that especially on home soil, which is stolen lands, that the relationship that First Nations women have with reproductive access is fundamentally different based on the way that black women's bodies are perceived versus white women and obviously all of the modes in between. Mm, Yeah. I mean, it's just got to come back to self-determination and bodily autonomy. Definitely. So what is an abortion? An abortion, wow. What is these things? I feel like doing like a like a jaunty stroll. Yeah. Like I should be on one of those um YouTube videos. So mm. what is an abortion? Yeah, I love that. A cheeky little deep dive. A little comprehensive deep dive into abortion. So what is an abortion? Abortion is I want to start off with saying abortion is a very deliberate act. It is what happens when a person decides based on various factors, whether it be the want to have or not have a child or medical elements to it, or any sort of factors, the person just decides that this is the best medical procedure to go down. So abortion is a medical procedure, first and foremost. Yeah, first. yeah. Um, it's just so loaded. It's just so latent with pain, yeah. potent with uh, other elements. But I think a lot of people forget that a lot of people that get abortions happen to also want children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or have children. So, yeah, it's, it's a very... Um, yeah, a very badly comprehensive answer to your question. But abortion is a medical procedure that involves the uh, excavation of tissue and cells in the body that make up the pregnancy. And you can have a surgical abortion or you can have a medical abortion. And a surgical abortion is um, done usually under anaesthetic and it's a DNC, which is, goodness, we, we oh, I forgot what that was actually called. Dilate and curate. That's the one. Yeah. Really sexy words. Yeah. <laughs> or a, a medical abortion, which involves taking four pills that uh, induces a miscarriage, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Did you know 
uh, that a spontaneous abortion is actually a miscarriage. I did know that, that language is really interesting in that. Language is really interesting and the way we discuss abortion is quite problematic. It is. Um, So when you... So when someone goes for an induced abortion, which is where you make the choice to do it, it's either therapeutic or elective. Yes. Yeah. Which sounds yeah. gross. Sounds like terrible. It, it, it's, it sounds like you're either getting Botox or heart surgery. Right? Like how can uh, – yeah, I, I, I find that really – you know, obviously no shade to, to Botox. No, um, absolutely. But obviously like we're talking about – something very different (laughs) i I just want to like just get rid of of the lines around my eyes yeah right i um, cannot afford to have this child yeah for the rest of my life yeah which will then cause the lines around my eyes (laughs) (laughs) but no i think that's um bringing up that language and and i'm I'm really glad that you reminded me that leah that that a miscarriage is a spontaneous abortion because i think i can even get a bit lost when I discuss abortion, in, and I can forget that sometimes, but that's a really interesting one because in um, in the seventies, or even now in in uh, post Roe America, a spontaneous abortion or a miscarriage was if if you had induced your own abortion through illegal channels, which were the only channels, um, you were not allowed to say that you had done that. You had to say that you'd had a miscarriage. Now it's the same thing but it would keep you out of jail. So language is incredibly important in that instance. Just stigma around the word, the A word is fascinating. Yeah, right. Mm. So should we get into some some myths and some facts? Let's get into some myths. Yeah. I'm excited for this. I'm, I'm also excited. I feel like I'm learning a lot, which is great. I've just, <laughs> I've just come out of the, my, my dungeon. I wrote a book over four months and it's it's just been, I've been in my little abortion dungeon. So it's really exciting for me when <laughs> I learn a bit more. I'm going, oh, God, that's Wish I'd put that in there. So thank oh, you. It's <laughs> all right. You can do tissue too. <laughs> no, they'll love spontaneous that. sequel. Yeah. Oh, I like that accidental sequel. Um, but yeah, let's get into some myths. Let's do some myths. Yeah. So fetuses have toenails and fingernails. Mm-hmm. True and false. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they begin to develop at ten weeks, but they don't form until thirty-two weeks. Yes, and we do know that in the the goalposts of time and temporality legally when it comes to abortion, shift a lot depending on the country that you live in and all of these elements there. So having life prove itself, and I I, I say life with air quotes here, (laughs) having life prove itself via its toenails and fingernails um, is really interesting because I find those pregnancy, those kind of pregnancy quotas of what, what determines where a baby is along the way is used against women in the context of abortion, which is really funny. How do you feel about the toenails? A bit gross, to be honest. Weird, hey. It's funny yeah. that they picked that one thing. I wonder what that's about. I think it's just a way to try and humanise Definitely. You know, it's got fingernails, it's got toes, it's just like you and me. Well, and I think it's an easier thing to do than than it's got a heart and a brain and all of that. I feel like the the superficiality of of the cute little tiny fingernails yeah. really feeds into that little helpless baby with its little fingernails. Ugh. Um, can a fetus feel pain? Mm, that's always been the contentious topic. I um, I got some science for you. Please, <laughs> I want to. I want to hear what you have to say here. Go, go for it. So it's both false and maybe after twenty weeks. Okay. So you've got to remember that in order to feel pain within our the the system, mm-hmm. you need to 
have nerve fibers and you need to have pain receptors and you need to have a brain that's developed enough to understand the signals from the pain receptors. So the pain receptors begin to develop at 10 weeks gestational age. Like we're talking roughly 10 weeks. At 10 weeks, the pain receptors are sending a signal to the brain, but the brain, and this is, you know, this is based on science and evidence and all that kind of stuff, but the Mm -hmm. brain doesn't have capacity to understand. So it's like you're speaking Spanish to someone who speaks English. Yes. If it hears you, it doesn't know what's going on. Yes. Yeah. It can't process it. No, yeah, so it's kind of like casting like a TV show from your phone to your TV, but your TV's not a smartphone. Yeah, okay. Ah, that's a great analogy. I like that. So in America, there are states that have legislated, and I don't know how relevant this is anymore, Mm -hmm. that a fetus must receive analgesia prior to an abortion after 20 weeks. Mm -hmm. That, That research is iffy at best, and once again, more safety measures are in place around abortion than gun access in America. Yeah, yeah. A 20 weeks is an interesting one. I'm sure you know what this is, Leah, but have you, have you heard of the, the term the quickening? Yeah. So in, in common law, like vintage sort of common law, which vintage common law, colonists <laughs> important. It's very colonial common law. The the quickening was seen as proof of, of the fetus kind of being a person per se. And that yeah. was usually the feeling of the fetus moving, which is usually around 20 weeks, so five months of of pregnancy so it's sort of the sensation of fetal motion but also I, I find it's interesting just buried in its title is this kind of idea that the pregnant body can perform its own duties as time keeper because the quickening was never kind of decided upon as always 20 weeks like some people that fall pregnant claim to feel the fetus before that or after that but even within common law uh, across um, the eons through yeah, colonialism, even within common law, this 20-week time stamp and the assumptions of what happens in the body within 20 weeks was too blanket even for the people that were falling pregnant. It's, yeah, it can get really, really murky, hey, when you try to yeah. kind of make sense of the fetus as a as a person because it's so different based on the body that the fetus is is growing in. Yeah, if you, like, poke your stomach, fetus will move. But that's a reflex. Mm. That's mm. not necessarily necessarily pain-related. That's just there's something there. Yep. Really pressure so you move away from that thing or you shift. Exactly how when a flower needs more sun, it will move its head towards mm. the sun. It doesn't it's... mean it feels pain or has fingernails or toes or cares about what you <laughs> But it, it's Oh, it, that's that's an image. Yeah, of, well, oh, that's terrifying. A I can sunflower see with nails on the, on the petals. <laughs> Awful. We'll start the pro dandelion movement. Yeah. A lot of people in the pro choice camp know that it's it's there's a form of life, whatever that is, whether or not that thing is sentient or, or, or overrides the life of a real living woman person is different. But the fetus will function the way any kind of tiny little organism ought to, like a flower, mm. like the grass, like all of these things. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I would expect that, like, even if you're looking at cells on a Petri dish, yeah, put, you know, a, a stabby thing there, things would separate and move away from it. Like it's not. They all wiggle. They do their little dances. They're wiggly. They're wiggles. Yeah. Their little cell dance. (laughs) There is no complex cortex until 26 to 28 weeks. Mm -hmm. And that is essential. That's like you won't be able to feel pain or tickles or any kind of anything. Yes. Until you have a developed complex cortex. No. And also most abortions that are occurring around that time, again, and uh, usually for 
medical reasons mm. quite generally at that time not to over generalize but usually that's like 95 percent of the, the time that's the case yes. so there's often other issues at play when someone requires a medical procedure such as this at 20 yeah. weeks yeah yeah so do abortions cause infertility <laughs> no absolutely not this is no false this is an interesting one for me, though, because I um, and I'll send you a link to this uh, if you want to put it in the show notes. I wrote an article for the Guardian the week of my abortion because I am a martyr, and I, that felt like a really smart thing to do about getting an abortion during lockdown. And so my mother experienced early onset menopause when she was twenty eight years old, the year that she had me. And it's quite a genetic thing. Her mother had early onset menopause. Her mother's mother. So I was actually looking down the barrel of egg freezing around that period, and I mm. started exhibiting signs of what I assumed was early onset menopause but was in fact first trimester pregnancy so the looming kind of threat of infertility in my individual case of getting pregnant and falling pregnant the same year that my mother went through early onset menopause infertility was sort of dangled in front of me like a uh, as if it overrided my my choice well what's Um, the purpose of you if you can't make children well that's it and then I, I was so hung up I think on the concept of of the threat of infertility that I forgot to view myself outside of that lens of of outside of the vessel idea. So yeah, infertility is a really, it's an interesting threat. It really is. (laughs) There are absolutely zero links to infertility from safe abortion clinics. Yes. That's a really important. Yeah. I think safe abortion clinics and safe abortion is a really significant differential. I agree. Um, I think so. Because if you don't make abortions accessible and safe, Mm-hmm. then we're going to go back to the backyard abortions where infertility could potentially oh, yeah. occur. And death. The, have you seen the Which aren't they the same things? Barren woman sent to death. Did you see the documentary The Janes? It's a HBO documentary. No. Very good. Very, very good. It interviewed, from memory, it interviewed nurses and obstetricians from that period. And one woman a week was being hospitalised uh, with sepsis um, because oh. she was inducing her own abortion because it was illegal. Women were dying every week from unsafe abortions yeah heard it here first folks Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah making abortions illegal using access to abortions doesn't stop abortions it just makes people unsafe pro-life my ass yeah (laughs) pro-life is a lie big lie big lie big big lie did you see that um old mate what's his name oh for the babies oh gosh Supporting Pell. Babies. What is his name? Like, you know, much for the babies. Yes. Want to get behind my good mate, George Pell? Oh, I did not see that and I'm so unsurprised. Hey. They had their demonstration, didn't they, on the 8th of October last year? Bernie Finn. Bernie Finn. Bernie Finn. That's that's his name. Yeah. Yeah. Disgusting human. Did Um, you see his promotional video for the March for the Babies? Quite hilarious. He showed these sort of young children. I find it interesting that they're all young girls, for starters. And they each say, when I grow up, I want to be either a ballerina or a builder or a mother or all of this stuff. It sort of is seen to celebrate the hopes and dreams of these young children. And I think the hypocrisy is lost on them because when they grow up, they want to, if she wants to keep being a ballerina and then falls pregnant and doesn't want to be, like Bernie Finn doesn't give a shit. No, not even slightly. No, what about their access to, to healthcare or to housing? Yeah, yeah. A a safe economy for them to to thrive in? Absolutely not. Children are really cute when they don't need anything. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. I do sometimes wonder if Bernie Finn marches for the babies in a like health and safety way or in a <laughs> oh, cardinal pell way. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love you know, to. I, I should probably call like a lawyer or something to make sure that's not definite. But it's just a question. Marketplace of ideas. Goodness, so abortions are dangerous. Abortions can be dangerous. They can be. They There are risks. Safe abortions, so abortions that are done through the appropriate channels, are significantly less risky. And abortions are, uh, you know, when we talk about the risks of abortion, we kind of forget about the incredible risk of childbirth. Like yeah. Insanely risky, really. There's a lot of a lot of terrible instances of, of childbirth going awry. I mean, most of the people I've spoken to who have delivered babies have had traumatic births yeah it seems to be the case so yeah there are there definitely are risks and uh, perhaps a little practical one msi australia which is the leading uh, abortion body in australia they actually offer a 24-hour nurse phone line um, when you are undergoing an abortion so there are ways to uh, practically monitor those risks safely in australia which is wonderful but abortion becomes far less risky when it's made accessible that's yeah. kind of the, the blanket statement there. Yeah. You, you're actually much more likely to die from childbirth than from an abortion from a regulated clinic. Wow. It does make sense. Now, here's some um, some annoying ones that were sent in from some friends of mine. I asked them what some of the myths that they'd <laughs> or some of the theories that they'd heard from forced birthers in regards to reasons why abortion should be, like, outlawed or stopped mm. or whatever. Mm. And this is one I got from Carly. Well, they're yeah. all actually but if medical diagnoses were better back then beethoven's mum would have been told to have an abortion because she had syphilis and then we wouldn't have beethoven (laughs) that's that's a really funny one we were were discussing this a little bit before we went on on air i i love that one i think that one's quite funny because i would love to know how many brilliant beethovens there are that turned into mothers because they had to we we live in a world where we have seen manhood as potential and womanhood as life-giving. Womanhood as sacrificial, motherhood as sacrificial. Yeah, the world we live in has us believe that motherhood is is to be sacrificial because the mother is a vessel. And there's yeah. this um, incredible author whose name, whose first name I can't remember, whose last name is Zimmerman. I will find the link. And she eloquently puts, for, for the mother to crack or be discarded after carrying, this is not outside the natural order. So I think mastitis, postpartum depression, um, episiotomy, like one's own even emotional emotional disarray if the birth isn't natural or organic or whatever. So the discarded, the the kind of broken vessel of the mother is is chill. We don't care about that. We don't care about that. Um, We care about the potential. And the potential lives in often men, manhood, the the male archetype of, of, of what is successful. I would love to know how many Beethovens were sent to cotton fields, how many Beethovens were sent to, uh, you know, give birth, how many Beethovens currently exist but don't have the resources or the understanding. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's my hot take. Well, what do, what do you think about that kind of uh, I just fuck off. Like, I, I don't <laughs> care. Listen, also, listen, yeah. listen to Chopin. Like, yeah. like read a different book. Like, we, we don't exist for your pleasure so that you can have things to do or to look at. Yeah, we don't exist for you. Like you said, other people could have thrived in that environment. Yeah, um, yeah. there's a reason sure. why we celebrate Beethoven more so than other, you know, potential incredible musicians. Mm. And um, there is a reason why we keep women and pregnant people giving 
you know, in, uh, enforcing birth. Also, like if she had syphilis, like damn, that sucks. That's got nothing to do with Beethoven. God, what a. I mean, I don't think that the medical science was there yet to to treat syphilis. Like, why yeah. is no one going like Beethoven's mum had syphilis? <laughs> is she okay? Like no one gives a shit okay. about her. Like, yeah, just like yeah, but we got Beethoven, didn't we? So like that was a win. Like piss off. Yeah, I hope Beethoven's mum had fun to get the syphilis as well. I hope she probably had a husband that had a lot of fun. Oh, you're, oh, damn! You're right. You're right. I mean, yeah. I hope so. Hope she she got it and she got it often. But <laughs> I'd say you're right though. Yeah, context is everything. Yeah. Mm. This chestnut. Uh, the fetus wants to live. <laughs> We've already discussed the fact they don't have a complex cortex. Do yes. you think that they have thoughts and feelings? Right. Do you remember being the fetus and going, fuck, I want to live. I can't wait to get my university degree. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember having that conversation in the womb. The first um, thing that babies do is cry. They yeah. don't want to be here. I want to go back. They're like, <laughs> bury me in the sand. I'm done. I get it. The fetus wanting to live is a really is quite a dangerous one because again, it yeah, scientifically it's 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 irresponsible. But I think again that idea of the potentiality, you know, because we forget when when someone says the fetus wants to live, we forget that the person carrying the fetus really wants to live. Yeah. That's kind of the point of the whole medical procedure. You want to live. You want to live the life that you want to live. For me, it's a little bit of that. Yeah, sure, ask that, but like. Also, it's scientifically impossible, but what about the what about the real-life human person that wants to leave? Ask me about my wants and dreams and I'll tell you. And I think that was a really deliberate thing that I did in the writing of this book. I knew that there wasn't a whole lot of literature that actually paired a singular person to the act. And I wanted to dedicate a lot of time in the book to speak about my own hopes, dreams and flaws and human mishaps and all of that stuff. I'm not a married woman, a married heterosexual woman that has one sexual partner and and still decided that wasn't for me. I really wear my heart on my sleeve in this book to humanise that. And I think Mm -hmm. at the heart of it is that is, is it that want to live? I really admire every single person that has undergone this, this medical procedure because at the heart of it is that real desire to live and to live well I think that's Mm. really important yeah and to be allowed to center ourselves in our own lives and I I don't think like women and femme people and femme presenting people are really allowed to live that way we're not that's not celebrated definitely we are we are shamed we're we're selfish or we're arrogant or entitled I mean we know that the language is quite gendered when you talk about someone who is a woman or feminine Mm. and they are you know take control of a meeting or take charge they're aggressive and they're bossy and all that kind of stuff whereas a man is considered you know a leader and all of that kind of nonsense this all applies here and it all plays into how we treat ourselves when we do actually put ourselves first and our lives first you're so right. I think that's a really important analogy because the barbaric uh, attribution of this act is definitely because the person who's decided to to have an abortion is taking power, and mm. that is what is threatening, not the act itself. Yeah. If that was, if the act itself was what was the most threatening, then I mean, then gender inequality wouldn't exist. You know, mm. there's so many elements of, of where people think. Uh, women owe them shit. Women don't owe anyone anything, especially not life and a life through through the lens of sacrifice. Mm. What about this one? This one's kind of a two-parter. Um, mm. Body never forgets an abortion. Mm. Um, this was a weird Christian one to be like, you'll be traumatised forever physically, mentally and emotionally. This one's a two-parter. This one's a, a ten-parter. In- <laughs> well, the first part is the body kind of does never forget an abortion yes. because they're, they're, 
there's marks in the uterus and that kind of thing. Yes. So when they do an internal ultrasound, they'll be able to tell if you've had an abortion, if you've had a pregnancy, like that kind of thing from, but like never forgets is like very like dun, dun, dun. It's a bit like I hate the sin, you know, it's a bit, it's very loaded. Never forgets. I have a lot of feelings about this one because I personally, um, I did have a really hard time emotionally with my abortion. That's something that I feel super comfortable talking about. And I think it also had a lot to do with um, the chemical hormonal dimension of, of, of pregnancy. I personally have not carried out a pregnancy past first trimester. So Mm. when I speak about pregnancy, it is through that limited lens. Um, Mm. But as um, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are aware, the the hormones are crazy. Mm. Uh, they're insane. They just absolutely change so much about you. I mean, I knew I was pregnant because I had this craving for for oysters at the um at the shops, and they didn't have oysters, and I sobbed. And like, oh, I I don't I don't sob about oysters. oysters. <laughs> sorry, no, not oysters. Sorry, mussels, mussels in the oh. little like garlic. It was very sad. So then I picked up a pregnancy test instead and lo and behold, there we go. Yeah. Um, there's your oyster or your muscle. There's, there's my muscle. There's my little, <laughs> you know, fingernails, toes, thankfully. <laughs> oh. delicious. Um, but they probably feel just as much pain as a fetus. Yeah. <laughs> Animal rights episode. No, but I think my point is that when I, when I felt sad, when I felt sad after my abortion, I – felt like I wasn't allowed to feel sad. Even mm-hmm. when I saw a GP who said, you know, most women feel relief after an abortion, I felt very alone in that because I didn't understand how I was so vehemently pro-choice and that I had made the right decision and I was really sad. Yeah. And I think that when we um, – it really hurts me when I see the pro-life movement, especially the Christian ideological pro-life movement, use this as proof of something really – guilty and shameful you know my my father had um, brain surgery a few years ago he's never going to forget that he had his own emotional response to that that's the nature of a medical procedure it affects you you rub up against so many different things in your life that are always going to stay with you but it doesn't mean that you should live with the shame that people other people have associated with that yeah so if anyone that is struggling after an abortion it doesn't mean you've made the wrong decision you've made the and it doesn't even have to be the right decision you know yeah, it, it can just be a decision that made sense at the time. That's all you have, and it doesn't mean that you can't down the line have a baby, like or, totally. or try to have another child or anything totally. like that. Totally. Um, and I mean, the statistics show that, like, the majority of women who have an abortion go on to have a child, yes. but at a time where it suits their lives better, where they're yeah, better financially or more mentally stable, or whatever it was that was stopping them from having the child at the time of the abortion. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was just going to add on to that point that also a lot of people that have had subsequent abortions, a, a lot of people when they talk about abortion, they assume that, you know, only one per person, otherwise <laughs> then you're just deep in the trenches. Uh, then you're an abortion addict. <laughs> but a lot of people that have had more than one abortion uh, that I interviewed, there might have been one abortion where they felt incredibly affected by it. And there was another one that they didn't feel that at all. And mm. that had to do with the outer world, you know. There was one mm. person I interviewed who was, I believe, in their 40s when they had uh, their second abortion and they they did not 
have any kind of emotional relationship to that pregnancy. It felt strictly medical. It felt like a medical procedure that was mm. sorted out. But they had, they had experienced a pregnancy, I believe, from memory in their 20s, and that really affected them. And that can be for a number of different reasons. It doesn't live in the act itself. Shame does not live in the act itself. No. Feelings do not live in the act itself. But the body can and does keep the score as well. Yeah. So I've had two abortions. Uh-huh. The first one was a medical procedure because I had had a molar pregnancy where the um the egg attached to my uterine wall it was missing chromosomes so it was never going to happen and it just the cells in my uterus just grew really abnormally and if you think like in a regular pregnancy your hormones are wild like try when you're your hcg like like my doctor thought I was having twins really yeah it was it was wild it was wild and we was so excited and I felt and this is so interesting I felt so pregnant and I remember thinking I feel more pregnant than I am which is such a weird wow that's such a and I just remember like trying to sleep at night and just being like something's wrong this is wrong I don't know what it is but something's wrong and it was the molar pregnancy at what point you discovered that it was within the first trimester. Wow. Is it co- is molar pre- I don't know much about molar pregnancies. Are they molar common? pregnancies are not common, mm-hmm. but not uncommon. Okay. Which yep. is useful, <laughs> a useful statistic. Yes. Um it's yes. really so you can have a partial mole or you can have a complete mole. And mm-hmm. I had a complete mole and they used to write that on my pathology slips, complete mole. And I'm just like, yeah, well, complete mole. <laughs> For that that miscarriage and that abortion or whatever you want to call it, like I was just like, it's sad, but I was never actually pregnant. My body yeah. just played a trick on me. Oh. So I was able to pro- like it was sad and I cried and I was upset and disappointed. And then I went on to have Isabel a couple of years later and wonderful, crazy, insane human child that they are. And then a couple of years ago, maybe seven, I don't know how long ago, it was a while, I'd fallen pregnant accidentally. That relationship had broken down, had broken down. And I was just like, well, <laughs> I don't, I don't want this. I was, you know, yeah. studying. I was doing stuff. I was, this is, this is not what I want to do at this point in time in my life. Yeah. But it's still sad. Yeah. I was relieved that it was done and that it was over. And it was for me to have a child at that point in my life was not the right decision. But I still every now and then just, I'll look at Isabel and I'll just be like, you could have had a little brother or sister. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's sad. It is. And it's allowed to be. And I, yeah. I I really admire you being able to speak openly about that because I, I looked for that a lot after my abortion. I wanted proof of sadness. Yeah. It's hard to find that outside of the, the really oppressive channels as well. Like it was hard to – you could have that in the sort of um, – really hush-hush conversations with some friends. Yeah. But even then, it was a, it, it, hearing that, I think it's incredibly important to remember that. You can yeah. experience You, you can have both things. Like the things that I've done over the last 10 years, like would have ne- I would have never been able to do them with a child. Like sure. my financial situation, all of the work that I've done, everything that I've achieved. Yeah. Like I probably could have, but not with the At same level of reward or my mental health or yeah. – you know, with all my yeah. hair, like just no, <laughs> no, exactly. At, at yeah. what cost? And this real um. So I'm a millennial. That's my. I'm very cleanly a millennial, and I interact with quite a few Zoomers in my day to day work. But I'm I'm noticing a shift in the in the evolution of the girl boss mentality, which is very much that women can and do and should have it all. And you, and I'm starting to notice people 
quite a bit younger than me settling down earlier and wanting to pursue their careers and wanting to do it all, which can be done, sure. I just want to know what all what is. Cost. All of what? Yeah, what is all? Uh, yeah, who decides yeah. what all is? Yeah. Like, what What do you mean? Like, what? what is mm. the concept of having it all, having doing it all, all, being it all? For who? For what? For like, and who's it's... determining this? What system is this coming from? You know, forcing, like, in, people into relationships. Like, you don't have to be into a relationship to be happy. Like, yeah. having a successful career. Like, maybe we should have, um, you know, secure welfare. Yeah, Maybe yeah. Housing and healthcare should yeah. be a human right that should be, you know, supported for everyone. 100%. You shouldn't need to have a successful career and a good income in order yeah. to be happy and healthy. Like that's oh, insane. That's that, that's it. Abortion bans and capitalism really holds hands at the finish line. Mm-hmm. There, it keeps it by the book. Yeah, which is really dangerous. But yeah, I, I, I back to that that thing of the Christian, you'll be traumatised forever. And, and like I said, when I mentioned Abazu before, that was based on a, an exorcism because it, a, a woman felt guilty after an abortion, so she was exorcised. That makes me so angry. Mm. Let her sit in that. We're so terrified of women feeling things that we just are so quick to, to want to erase any thread of that. Yeah, And I feel like even instinctively as someone who's a feminine person, I, I also too get scared of my, my emotions sometimes. You know, it's, there's no space in the world for loud, angry and not sorry women. <laughs> yeah, I've, and I've, I feel like the discourse is interesting because I feel like there's some things that can't, we're not allowed to say them. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, if you admit that you're sad, then you're kind of siding with the, with the forced birthers. Yeah, yes. Yeah, And we can't have that. We can't have nuance in these conversations because we're not there yet. We can't give them any kind of leeway. Mm -hmm. And I just really wish that we'd stop framing our conversations around conservative narratives and speak our truth because I think there's more power in that. Yeah, the conservative narrative should not be the default here. Yeah, and it it shouldn't be anything that we frame our arguments against either. Totally. Just just push it away to the side. Mm -hmm. It's not the point. It's a distraction. Yes, it is. And it's a deliberate distraction. It's a yeah. very deliberate distraction. And when they talk about you'll be tra- traumatised forever, mm. trying to get you to, to birth a child against your will, yeah, I can't think of anything more traumatic than going through a, something like giving birth to a child that you don't want, not right? just for you but for the child. No one ever asks a mother if they regret having babies, do they? They always will ask someone who's had an abortion if they regret having an abortion. Yeah. If you were a mother and you re- or a father or anything and you say, yes, I regret having children, oh. like, oh, my God, in the bin. Like, in the bin. Evil, diabolical. a way to cancel oh. someone sooner. That is, uh, it's, it was really interesting during the process of writing the book. I had to really interrogate my relationship to motherhood. And yeah. I think at the, at the heart of that was my relationship to my own mother. and. I've had some really difficult conversations with my mother over the years, but going through the abortion shed this whole new light for me and really afforded us the space to understand one another a little bit more intimately, whereas I feel like I held a standard of motherhood to her that was socially decided upon, and when she didn't appease those standards according to my own analysis as as the daughter, she confused me a lot. So I Mm. found that really... Uh, yeah, I think being open about my abortion opened up a conversation about motherhood that I was not expecting to have with, mm. with my own mother, which was cool. Hmm, that is cool. Yeah. I mean, it goes, you know, the, the idea of the non-maternal sort of mother or, or even all of the, the um, it, it even lives within pregnancy hierarchies of worth. 
the people mm. that have natural birds versus cesareans, people that breastfeed versus don't breastfeed. There's still oh. these Puritan hierarchies within there of what makes a good good mother, which is fascinating. Yeah. And dangerous and lazy. Yeah, it, it is lazy. And especially, like, who gets to determine what is good and what is bad? Exactly. Oh, this is – so this is our final one that I've got on my little chart, but if you can think of any, let me know. You should enter every sexual encounter prepared to bring life into the world. So homophobic, for starters. First and foremost. My uh, only response to this is, like, no, you. <laughs> yeah, that's a you problem. If that's how I was operating, then I probably would be a 40-year-old 30, 30 virgin, um, for starters. I'd be masturbating a lot. I'd be masturbating a lot. <laughs> But yeah, but yeah, even that, like even viewing that sexual encounter as as sinful as well, or as you know, prepared to to bring life into the world, that reminds me actually of the hierarchy of victimology in abortion distress. So I had a really interesting conversation with my dad, who did later apologize and and understood where I was coming from, where he had made mention of why why he found the overturning of Roe v. Wade deplorable, and that was because he felt sorry for rape survivors in this context. But did he feel sorry for people that were just fucking for the sake of fucking? No. Again, you should be pre- prepared to bring life into the world every time you have a sexual encounter. And I thought that was a really interesting idea because I'd heard it a lot. But to hear it from my own father in the dawn of my own of my abortion, which wasn't the result of me being victimised, was interesting. And it just made me think we expect a certain amount of victimisation of femme people in this yeah. world. Yeah. And when the femme person or the AFAB person or whoever has been victimised already, say in, in the context of a sexual assault, then maybe maybe we won't, won't continue with the assault governmentally, administratively. Maybe we'll just cut back. They've already been sufficiently victimised. But when the person who just fucks for the sake of fucking, the, the woman or the femme person or the AFAB person, they have to then bear the consequences. One yeah. One element of that that I find really interesting, though, is that, the pro-life movement attests to this, but they say it in such a way that they use life, they use childbirth as penance, as punishment. Mm. You fuck without protection, then you deserve to get pregnant without your wanting. If they care so much about life, why would they use it as punishment? Because that's terrifying. That then, then there's a bunch of babies in the world that don't have sufficient care and love, which there already are. For starters, you only need to go to Torm in Ireland to know how they treat those babies. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And child migration programs. Uh, On home soil, looking at the the treatment of First Nations people, looking at the prison at 10 years old, Dom Perrottet, I'm looking at you. You know, all of these elements here of life being seen as punishment to, to the unprepared woman that's that's had sex for the sake of having sex yeah um, it it does fascinate me i think that is maybe another myth to or an additional sub myth of that myth of the hierarchy of who deserves an abortion yeah mm. because there's even when you talk about it with a, with a broad spectrum of people even people that are pro-choice perhaps not as as pro-choice as others i find the very common example that gets brought up is the 11 year old girl who's fallen pregnant as a result of rape or incest or both obviously both in that instance I find that really interesting I I obviously care immensely about her I think it's much easier to have sympathy for someone like that than it is the 
27-year-old, happy-go-lucky, easygoing person with heaps of sexual partners that might not know how or when. Or even if it was just a mistake. Or even if it was just a mistake. Yeah, any there exactly. Everyone deserves a fucking abortion. That's kind of the point, you know. Yeah, yeah. There, there is definitely a thing about like the perfect victim that is again. I don't know if paternalistic is the right word, but it's very like you know, children should be protected and children should be this and that. So we should allow them to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. Children have the right to protection so much. Who's stepping in, stopping her from getting raped in the first place? Exactly. Where, where, what's going on there? Yeah, but it's it's always in response to, but there's no supports from the ground up. Yes, because I'm I'm certain that people knew that was happening. One hundred percent. Yeah, 100%. there's there's always someone who knows what's going always. on. Always, always there has to be. They they yeah. just eat. Yeah. yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I I think abortion is so littered with the wounds of gender inequality that it kind of it becomes the greatest metaphor because it kind of holds all of the the chasms of gender inequality in its womb per se you know all these elements of the perfect victim um the perfect woman as well like uh, ideals of womanhood i i remember reading this really interesting article about a um a trans man who wanted to get an abortion in colombia and in Colombia, the law is such that women who have been raped are uh, afforded abortions, but nobody else. He exhibited as a, as a man, um, because he is one and he felt pregnant. And the response was such that, well, it says legally only women are allowed abortions in this context. I thought that was a really interesting decision that the doctor made. And it was a decision. It was a choice to, yeah. to ensure that he wasn't able to practice his agency because I think. What I learned when I wrote an essay on queerness and abortion was that what this trans man did in seeking an abortion and in, even in just being trans was he pushed against the margins of prescriptive womanhood. Yeah. He wasn't that. He disobeyed that. And every single person that goes through an abortion does that. And then you layer it up based on these other social dimensions of their experiences. So, yeah, abortion does hold within it such a micro and macro gender inequality just whirlpool cesspool of nonsense hey yeah fascinating it's it's the system that we've been fighting against for centuries Mm -hmm. yeah yeah of of the right to autonomy and Mm self-determination speaking of someone who is white Mm -hmm. and that's happening to me Mm -hmm. you just know that when you throw in a disability um a person of color an indigenous person it just manifests and just it just multiplies the inequality and the lack of access there was a fascinating uh, conversation that i was really lucky to be privy to and i won't obviously name names because of the of um their own privacy wants um and it was contained but it was in the context of a first nations woman an indigenous woman who spoke about abortion broadly and spoke about the pressure, even the internal pressure of having to continue on the legacy of culture when you're pregnant and don't want to be in a colonised world. And that level of pressure on on carrying life per se and and having to, to create life, I, as a settler, can't possibly imagine what that would be like. Mm. It would be unfair of me to even attempt to understand that added dimension there. So yeah, it's it's there's so many layers. There are so many incredible and devastating layers to this mm. argument. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So 
usually, mm-hmm. I mean, there's multiple reasons why people decide to have an abortion, but the overwhelming reason is socioeconomic factors, financial, housing, or mental health. We have seen, I think there there was a study done where I think it was around 90% of women who were denied an abortion went on to have the child and Mm. actually keep the child. So only 10% put it up for adoption and they just, they really suffered. Financially they suffered. It makes life difficult. And then on top of that, this child that you you knew that you couldn't look after, yeah. That just really brings it back that they don't actually care about us. They don't care about our our health, our well-being. They just want to control our bodies and our reproduction. Absolutely. And part of me is like, and this might be cynical and this might be a little bit conspiracy theory, yeah. you know, tinfoil hat moment, but like I feel like they're trying to force particularly poor people into having more children to create a workforce that is subservient to underpaid jobs. Yes, 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 yes. I actually had this thought um, leading into this conversation where, and I also had the same thought as you have been like, am I, am I, being am, I am I crazy? Yeah, is there, is there a reason why? So I had that same thought, Leah. I was thinking about the context of, yeah, of, of class and race and particularly the, the low socioeconomic dimensions of, of the reasons why people pursue abortions. And I thought, God, it's, fucking convenient force women and pregnant people to have children that they can't afford to have and then to send these children to jails and and keep them in these spaces of 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 strict and terrible discipline because we need slave labor this the colonial system needs slave labor needs an enemy and we know now we've done enough social and and political scientific research to understand the impacts of low socioeconomic you know effects on society and we we know that like it really does come down to it's it's far beyond the nature versus not nurture debate now it's based on yeah. oppressive systems the yeah. system itself is an abusive relationship like oh. you talk about coercive control surveillance you know financial abuse physical abuse by the police yeah it's it's an abusive relationship it is. It and is. that is and then you've got men who are mirroring that system in their relationships with women. Yep. I mean, obviously not all men. Sorry, I know I feel like I have to say that. <laughs> That's a beautiful analogy. It's the heart of that analogy too is that the abuser, be it the oppressive system in this instance, um, will convince the survivor that they need him or it yep. and that they that they're doing this to help. And that's exactly what this uh, forced birth p- pipeline that we're going down is doing. It's gaslighting people into thinking that childbirth is the is the only is the only path, and yeah, it just reinforces these systems of oppression. It just reinforces the the slave labor. I I think we're onto something. I'm going to be honest. I think we're onto something. Yeah, and then you look at how welfare, like the the bonuses, the baby bonuses, and the things like that, and then in places I think it's Hungary where they have uh, tax exemptions that that increase, yeah. um, depending on how many children you have. Yeah. But there's no structural supports for those children. So those children that you have one, two, three to, you know, keep food on the table, keep roofs over your head, then it gets to a point where they just enter the workforce. Jeez. It's um it's it's kind of terrifying. Pandora's box abortion discourse, it really is. Mm. Once you open one one door, you're like, Wow, okay, I see, I see. I hate to always 
I don't want to be the person that like always brings up Trump because he bores me. He really does. And this <laughs> is like far greater and more oppressive than just him. He's the scapegoat, I think, in a lot of instances. I I think he's a symptom. But yeah. that man, I would love to know how many abortions that man has paid for. I really would. He's paid for a lot of abortions, I'd say. He's and he also it's interesting to watch videos of him, vintage videos of Trump being pro abortion. Not pro choice, but not as devilish as he became because the government had a oh, it sounds like i'm defending trump god this has gone the wrong way i'm trying to say that it's um <laughs> lack of abortion access is strategic it's very politically economically socially strategic it is it is i have got an interview now yes go do your thing holly um she is an activist and a photographer from argentina and she talks about how the abortion laws were overturned in Argentina and what's happening in Argentina now. Thanks for joining us, Polly. Did you want to just tell us a bit about yourself? So I'm Argentinian from Buenos Aires. I'm a photographer, actually. And, yeah, I moved in to Melbourne in the end of 2020 and I've been here ever since. I miss it back home. I've been back one month ago, actually. It was so nice. <laughs> I left when abortion was not legal and I now came back where it was. But yeah, there's, I think, lots of things that we need to still work with, especially yeah. in places like South America, where religion is still very big and has a big say on what mm. is happening. There's been lots of, for what I know, um, cases of like, not that much in Buenos Aires, but like other places more rural where even like little kids that have been raped are not getting abortions even though it's legal mm. or they're making it hard for them anyway. So I think that the campaign at the moment is trying to focus on sex education and making everyone know that this is a right that you can access to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting, the differences between positive law and natural law. What might be acceptable in the court doesn't necessarily translate to the street. Especially because like the law has this thing that you as a doctor can like have this consensus object or something like that. Hey, I'm religious. I'm not performing this. But apparently the law says that you should be able and you should make like take this person to another yep. doctor or another health practitioner to be able to perform it, not just like try to convince whoever. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you got there. Like it does, if you made a choice, then there is. That choice person. needs to be respected. And that's the problem with the legal system, isn't it? That just because there's a law in place, it that law needs to be enforced and that law needs to be respected. Well, the law says that it's legal for the first 14 weeks. You could go and like, do something about it but by the time that something actually happens and like goes to court and like blah you know like mm, it's too late so they've been encountering all these problems which is what what now the campaign is still like working pretty hard on still like being able to deliver especially like giving sex education um, yeah which is very important for there's a very big like inequality in argentina and probably in lots of south america so like Lots of people miss sexual education yeah, and don't know that this is things that they can access to, which is, yeah, what they're trying to do now. But this has been a movement since like the 70s. But in 2005 is when the campaign for um, legal, safe and free abortions actually mm. started as an organization, like a proper organization. And they've been literally trying to get the Congress to pass the bill. 
every year since, mm-hmm. but it wasn't till 2018 that the government actually put in their agenda. Mm-hmm. And that was a big moment where we, all of us started like going out on the street and, you know, like actually making lots of noise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was so much people out and it was beautiful. Like I was always going there with my camera to take photos because mm. I wanted to document obviously history. Um, yeah. And oh my God, there were so many people, like so much people, so much. And it was so beautiful because we were all there like fighting together. It became like very powerful. And well, we have this like green handkerchief. This is the symbol of it. We would all be yeah. wearing this. He got kind of like got spread around, which is good. Yeah. I've seen like people from other countries and stuff wearing them as well. And I think Argentina is actually the third country in Latin America to legalize abortion. The first one was Cuba. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was Uruguay. Then Argentina. Now I, I read that Colombia actually last year as well. Yeah. Um, I saw online. I have no idea. <laughs> I didn't fact check That's... very well. <laughs> Yeah, Chile is still fighting for their rights to access. Yeah. And yeah, what I saw is that everyone started wearing this um, handkerchief and it became such a big movement that other countries around us, even though they were probably fighting in their own way and they're all wearing this like green thing. And and I always found it so good how we all like found such comfort in just like something so stupid as a handkerchief, like you would take it with you everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, yeah, for ages, I was just wearing it around my wrist constantly because it's too hot here. But like, yeah, I always had it on, like, as a reminder of that unified solidarity and what solidarity can really achieve. We'll never forget the first time that I saw Listesis, The Rapist in Your Path. I think I watched it like four or five times, like, as a, as an activist fighting against oppression to see that number of people in the streets was so inspiring and in a country like like South America and like Argentina and Chile and places like that where it's so dangerous oh it was so inspiring it could become a bit rowdy sometimes with the police and stuff especially because we usually used to walk down this like very big main road in the city and Mm. it takes you all the way to where basically the president's house is which we call the pink house but there's also next to it the cathedral of the of the city which is huge yeah. And the first two times, like, it became a bit rowdy because people were throwing stuff at it. And then mm. they started, like, putting some, like, not only, like, lots of riot police, but also some, like, fences. And there was a moment where I remember we were all there and we were taking photos because the police were not adhering to what they promised they would be doing, which is all of them had to wear names. They couldn't have pepper spray and stuff like that. Yeah. This they sounds actually... so Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and me and lots of our photographers that were, I think, also journalists, we were taking photos of it. And then all of a sudden I take this photo because I see that one of them goes and like pepper sprays directly into this woman's eye. And she's like, she's not doing anything. She's just there yeah. behind the, this barrier that they have put on. Like she was not doing anything apart from taking a photo of them. And I took the exact photo when like you can see all the pepper spray going into her face. And she ended up being a journalist for a, one of the biggest, like, Argentinian journal. It was like an online magazine or whatever. Wow. Um, and she, yeah, she, I ended up exchanging contests. Like, I took the photo and then, like, she started posting the photo everywhere. <laughs> and we we're like, look at what they're doing to us. And we were not yeah. doing anything, yeah. you know, which was pretty intense. 
in some way. In what lots is? of ways. Protesting yeah, the police. I don't think people realise how the police are really a, just an instrument of state violence. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I don't think anyone died, not that I know of at least, but it could have become like, I remember my mom calling me being like, where are you? Come home. Like I'm watching the news and it looks pretty bad actually. Cause I remember I was like, mom, there's nothing's happening where I am. Like there's so much people. Also the media was like, probably making it seem worse than it was so interesting um, yeah how they they manipulate the media to, to feed a narrative a, a fear-based narrative I remember when first time that um it actually went into like the congress and they voted for the bill all the congressmen like first it goes through deput- deputies and then it goes to senators and then they actually deput- deputies like voted yes but then in, in the senate it got rejected and I remember we were there every time there was a vote we were there all night it was during winter as well and like we were in this park and then the police or the government divided the park so like people that were against abortion would be Mm. on one side of the park and the and all of us that we were pro-abortion like were on on the like the right side of it so that we wouldn't fight with each other it was like There was not many of them anyway over there, but like Yeah, but it's amazing how there's so few who are like pro forced birth, but their voice is so powerful in the government. It's like the majority of the population is for abortion and for bodily autonomy and self determination. But that's not reflected in government and it must just be a a conservative money thing. That, yeah, 100% is that. Argentina is actually a government that supposedly has, has separated state from church, but is not really true. Same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, you can it's... still see how much lobby they actually have. And yeah. I remember no. we did a big like um, protest and they called all of us and we all apostated together. Like everyone that is like baptized, if you apostate, that means that you tell the the church that you don't want to be Catholic anymore. So we did it as a we did it as a performance. We all yeah. went like to, like in, like mailing in the post to whatever church you were baptizing, saying like I apostate just to, so that they could see that not the majority of the population is yeah. actually Catholic. We're just baptized because it's yeah. tradition. Yeah. So we spoke briefly about Latistas and rapists in your path, and you spoke about that kind of action. I feel like the South American movement is really known for Latin America anyway was really known for having really incredible performances and stunts and actions do you think that was instrumental in getting people on board is that something that we need to do over here uh it could be a good idea I feel like somewhere like in Australia I don't think people were doing it because of that Mm. but people were doing like they already were there and they were doing it because it's like oh I'm an activist and I'm a feminist and I want this to happen and I'm also like an actress why don't we do a performance yeah I do feel like here in Australia would be good though yeah to do for sure like I think especially here in Melbourne like there's so many so many artists yeah that I think will be so interested in organizing things like this yeah now you've got my little brain working (laughs) (laughs) I love it yeah there was lots of it actually that were pretty good Um, yeah but yeah I feel like people were more angry and then that came as a result of it than people being like oh look they're doing this like oh yeah absolutely yeah absolutely do you think that Australian feminists aren't angry enough I don't know Uh, how to phrase that because of I I know what I mean 
Yeah. I feel like we already as Latin Americans are, I mean, I'm going to fall into a stereotype, but we are actually very passionate. Yeah. Especially Argentina. I don't know other countries, but in Argentina, people, when they are angry about something, they go out on the street and they make it known. I haven't seen that much of that in here, which mm. is something I actually miss. A little bit. <laughs> uh, you need to get my number. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll invite you out. Don't worry. I love we, it. We get we get up to some mischief. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, maybe I don't know if it's not being angry. Maybe it's just not that much of like going out to the street and making everyone know how angry you are. You know what I mean? Mm, we, I think we still fall into that very English, trying to be proper and trying to be nice women and trying to present in a in a pleasant way. That is like really unhelpful but I yeah I know lots of Australian women and definitely they they are angry <laughs> but angry <laughs> and repressed and, and we, we we tend to take it a lot more than what we should and there's a lot of internalized blame and internalized misogyny obviously yeah and um, yeah they are angry for sure <laughs> yeah no absolutely we yeah. should be like I mean yeah, nothing exactly. that you've just nothing that you've said like making abortion illegal and then blocking access is exactly what is happening here exactly. being a secular state and the church having the power that it has is exactly what's happening here one of the big things that they were trying to make abortion legal in Argentina is that it obviously was illegal but everyone that had money and it was probably white yeah. could get abortions properly. Like you could just go to any doctor and pay all the money that yeah. they're asking for. You'll get it. It's still such a racial and class in between yeah. quotes. Yeah. Because the people that are not getting access are still the same people. Yeah. And the, these kind of laws always impact the marginalized and the oppressed in the in the community. Yeah. We took a big step. It's like you're, you can never like be like, okay, we got it. It's fine. Yeah. Now you can sit and relax. No, <laughs> you, can't. you have to keep going. <laughs> have to keep going, have to keep pushing. The system isn't designed for us to have complete bodily autonomy. Right. So big question. If there were, say, three things that we could do in this country to grow the feminist movement, to create more support, more awareness, what are three things that we would do from your experience in Argentina? Well, now social media is obviously the place where like everyone goes and like sees whatever is happening. Like I feel like maybe I, I never see like people being like oh hey this happened like I didn't even know that in Australia here we, like it was happening the same thing mm. not everyone being able to get abortions maybe other people don't know either and it's like hey did you realize like maybe ed educate in a way people you could mm. do it through social media or like in whatever way and be like hey this is wrong we should do something about it and then mm. yeah and then things I feel like organizing these like performances could be so cool as well I think yeah. a lot of people will be yeah like just I know getting together a bit more and talking about all these things and educating each other so that we can tell other people hey this is happening if you didn't realize and we should probably do something about it <laughs> yeah yeah look that sounds like great advice <laughs> yeah I actually didn't have any uh, any idea about what you just told me which is crazy. Yeah, that is wild. I mean, the religious organizations are allowed to refuse abortion. And if that's your hospital in your catchment area, then you've got nowhere to get an abortion. You have to go and pay for it. But if you don't have that $500 or $1,000 or however much, then you just, you have to have a baby. Exactly. So then it's actually the same problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I feel like there's probably more paths in Australia. Like, you know, there's more organizations. Like there's probably some way to maneuver the system. Like, you know, there's someone that you can call to get support and things like that. 
that. But it's that level of knowing. It's just tricky. Yeah, okay. I know. But like, yeah, I feel like definitely getting together and talking about it and maybe, yeah, telling other people what's happening would definitely do something. I reckon, I reckon it might do more than something. I'll be there <laughs> for sure. Cool. For now, thanks so much for your time. No worries. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Yeah, see you on the street. Thanks for speaking with us, Polly. That interview really highlights what's happening in Argentina just mirrors so much of what we are going through now, which it just goes to show that, you know, at the end of the day, the system isn't designed to support us having bodily autonomy and people will do whatever they need to do Mm -hmm. in order to exert control over our lives and our bodies. Yeah, wow. And, yeah, and like Polly said, like the fight's just not over. Wow, it's it's such a global fight, hey. It's it so such a global fight. And I think the when people realise that these fights are not individual, mm. like we're not just fighting for abortion, we're fighting for autonomy and self-determination, yeah. which flows into um, decolonisation and in First Nations people right to self-determination to, and to self-govern and to live their community, live in their communities how they choose to live. Oh, my God, yes. Like climate, it flows long. into climate justice yeah. and then it fo- flows into housing exactly. and, you know, like all of these things are so connected because it's a, a colonial system that is in itself oppressive and the patriarchy is a symptom of colonisation and colonial empire. Yeah, 100%. And it's all, it's all connected. It's like, I, I feel like I've got my tinfoil hat back on. But no, but it is. It really is. It, I mean, it, and I think that the number one lie is that the system, while it was meddling with all of its little minions, us, while it was doing its meddling, it was convincing us that this is the natural order of things. Yeah. Which is it's really not supposed to be thing. this way. No, it's, it's the ultimate gaslighter. Hey. Yeah. I, yeah. I really resonate with that analogy you, you made, Leah, because I think that looking through that lens of domestic abuse as a system of behaviours and looking through the lens of the world, it's the ultimate, largest, most colossal abusive relationship and we're all yeah. in it. Like I came to this conclusion a little while ago, but then I started researching it and feminist abolitionists yeah. have been have drawn that conclusion yonks and yonks ago. Yonks ago, yonks it's, ago. It's a... Um, that it's the state that is the problem and it's the state that needs to go. It's the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. That that was the point I was trying to make earlier, but I was rambling like a <laughs> Sorry. The point I was trying to make about how deliberate the, the system is when it comes to uh, so, low socioeconomic people and whatnot is um, we're filling our prisons when we're banning abortion. And that's yeah. not because there's more bad people because we know, we know that that's not what gets you in prison. Yeah. It's, all systemic it's got nothing to do with good and bad binaries it's got nothing to do really with crime it has everything to do with keep these people having unwanted birds and let's keep the prisons full that's what they say yeah saying it without saying it absolutely awesome all right um that's enough of that let's move on to the next episode where we are going to discuss the 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 politics behind abortion access